Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it's Tuesday, December 14th, 2010. And our special guest on the future of education tonight is Deborah Meyer. And I don't think we have Deborah on the phone yet. We're hoping that she will show up. Um, Deborah, are you there? I didn't think so. Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate, now Blackboard Collaborate. The project I work on is LearnCentral.org. It's a social network for educators that has Illuminate baked in. It is free, and you get the free 3% Illuminate room when you join LearnCentral. We hope you'll come and take advantage of that. Tomorrow are the EduBlog Awards. Future of Education was nominated for an EduBlog Award, as were many other very worthy individuals and websites. Go to edublogawards.com. The voting ends tonight. Uh, in fact, it ends in four hours, just under four hours. So if you have a favorite, someone you want to vote for, I understand that in several categories, the differences are down to one or two votes. So I'm going to be voting in a few minutes. I am co-hosting tomorrow night, so it should be a lot of fun. So that's tomorrow, 4 p.m. Pacific, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, go to edublogawards.com for the links. Coming up uh, Thursday, tomorrow is the Edublog Awards. Coming up Thursday is Alfie Cohn. Uh, as well, a December, late December or mid-December night, so that may be why we have fewer participants than usual. But great guests, and that may be why those guests are available. Then we take a little bit of a break until January. Ira David Sokol comes on, Will Richardson, Barnett Berry, Karen Cater will now be on the 24th of January, and that's confirmed. Um, Karen Hume on February 3rd, David Perkins on the 15th, March 1st, Andy Hirsch on Libraries and Digital Literacy. Lots more fun coming up. If you have missed the show, they're all recorded futureofeducation.com, Julie Young on Florida Virtual School. Uh, that was Thursday of last week. I had a terrible cold. You'll hear that in my voice, but a great interview, and what a really terrific lady. Uh, Karen Egan, Phil Schlechty, Matt Levins, and Steve Farr, Vicky Abelis, lots of other great guests. hope that one of those recordings, or several, catch your eye and are worth listening to at some point. If this is your first time at Illuminate, it is a participative environment. This is a small group, so you may not need to do this, but I always go up to view layouts, and I switch to the wide layout. And given the size of the group and not hearing Deborah on the line yet, I'm not going to go through the full orientation, but if you have any questions, you can put them in the chat, and we'll help you through it. So for fun, those of you who are here, you can let me know, let us know where you're participating from. Look for the wand with the red star at the end. Click on that. Click on the map. You can also shout it out in the chat. Bill, thanks for reminding us that you're in Manila. I always feel shy about geographies in Southeast Asia. So again, as always, wherever you're participating from, we're sure glad to have you. And we appreciate your taking the time. Now, let's give Deborah a chance here again. Deborah, are you on the line by chance? I think it's possible that she is going to miss tonight. 
I did have email contact with her just a few days ago, and she remembered the date, and she had it on her calendar. So I'm sure she's, there's something, some reason that she's not here. But I think that what I will do is I'm going to wait five minutes. I'm going to pause the recording, and we'll see if she comes on. If she does not, we'll close. If she does come on, we will record. So if you get tired of waiting, you're certainly welcome to go. But I'm going to click that pause button, and we will give her a few minutes here. So now I noticed that you go by Deb, and I've heard you called Deb. Do you like Deb or Deborah? Oh, Deborah. I I like Deborah. But I I just it takes it takes four more. Well, type, you know, it's a little longer. <laughs> I use everything. <laughs> but Deborah is Deborah's your preferred? It's my preferred. Well, that's but, easy for us. Hey, I need hey, to tell you uh, just yeah. how much... Go ahead, I'm sorry. You're going to find with the telephone bridge that there's a little bit of a lag, and so I'll try not to speak over you, but if I do, I'll just stop, and then I'll let you finish. Okay. Are you there? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I think pauses. You're doing something. Are you doing something? Hello? So we had some kind of a system lag and your audio is catching up, so we'll just be a second. Oh, okay. I wasn't clear whether these silences, were you doing something else or are being disconnected? So there's been some long delay in the audio. I have not seen that. Uh, bef I haven't seen that in a while. Who am I talking to right now? Definitely delayed for everybody. I can see for all of you, you're getting a delay. So hopefully we'll be caught up in just a second here. No, I just wanted. If you're getting the what we call right chipmunking, which is where the audio speeds up to make sure that nothing gets lost. Okay, Steve. So this is Steve Hargadon. So again, I'm waiting. I have an indicator here that tells me that the audio is uh, getting back to normal, and I'm just waiting for that to happen. And it looks like everybody but Eleanor has full audio, but so we'll go ahead and move move forward. So Deborah, I wanted to tell you just sort of what a pleasure it was to read much of your material today. Um, it, it's kind of magical the degree to which we've wended our way through the last couple of years of discussions to arrive at your books, which 
which so fully describe some of the themes that have been a part of the interview series. In particular, uh, building cultures of education and ideas oh, around okay. uh, I'm local engagement. I'm a native actually New Yorker, but I went to college Are you willing to give us sort of a short synopsis of your history for those who might not know much about you? I had some children. And um, while my children were young, I wanted to make a little money, so I started substituting in schools. But I had absolutely no interest in education. But uh, somehow I landed up, landed uh, in a teaching in a half-day kindergarten across the street from where I lived and where my children went to school, and fell in love with being a kindergarten teacher. And uh, we made several moves after that. I taught Head Start, and I taught kindergarten then in Central Harlem. And uh, somewhere along the line, I got uh, interested in trying to build collegial communities among teachers. And that led to uh, a proposal from the superintendent in East Harlem for me to start a school, a public school in East Harlem, uh, <coughs> that uh, would be a choice school for parents in East Harlem. And that was 1974, and we opened that fall. And um, it was so popular that we opened two more satellite schools, you know, separate schools. But we, uh, in the beginning, we pooled all our resources and um, awaiting in the admissions. <clears throat> so parents wouldn't choose between the three. And um, uh, the school, uh, two of those three first schools still are still thriving uh, in East Harlem. And then in 1985, I started a secondary school at the urging of parents at our school um, so that kids could keep that kind of education going um, through high school. And uh, we started a secondary school, and it was very successful and much heralded. And then we started a bunch of high schools in New York and collaborated with other people who were coming to the same ideas that we were and ready to do something different. And there was uh, you know, about 50 to 100 such schools around the city, elementary, middle schools, and high schools. And we built a network then, and we had all kinds of ideas of how <coughs> this network might approach the question of accountability differently. And, uh, how they might develop a different form of uh, assessment that more accurately reflected, reflected schools' impact on children's futures. And uh, we got a big grant to do that, but and we started it, and we uh, did some really transformative work. But uh, uh, we got a new chancellor came in, and he wasn't willing to ex expand this program. And for various reasons, I then... Uh, chose um, to go to Boston where I could go back. During this period, last period, I was sort of out of the classroom and out of the school and being sort of political, and I was really tired of that. So I was invited to start a pilot school in the Boston public school system, which was kind of like a charter-like thing, but we were part of the regular Boston public schools, and um, I remember teachers were all members of the union, etc. <laughs> and that was very exciting. We, it was a K, K through 8 school, so with a little of my elementary experience and my secondary school experience. And uh, I did that for 10 years and then retired. And so, now I just keep writing. I, when I left New York is when I wrote the first book. I wrote lots of articles before that. But I wrote The Power of Their Ideas uh, when I left New York City and had the time to really reflect on that experience. 
And then since then, I wrote a book about my experience in Boston and a few other books. So I felt like I got to know you very well in one story in the book, and that's when you drive up to Boston and over a kitchen table say, we should start a school. Mm -hmm. That That is uh, a wonderful story. And my friend Brenda is the co-author of the last book I wrote. She's the one whose kitchen table we sat at. And she and I collaborated on another book about early childhood and about recess and play called Playing for Keeps, which just came out a few months ago. So I, as I recall, you had some experiences as a teacher, though, that did kind of shape your perceptions about sort of power and authority related to that job that, that seemed to now be a pretty significant thread in your books. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I had actually gone to fairly progressive schools. Um, in the private sector, and I don't think I ever really knew. I just assumed public schools were similar, but classes were larger, and the students were more heterogeneous than they were in a private school. I didn't realize how different, until I began to sub in Chicago, how extraordinarily different was the um, culture of the school itself, and the interactions between teachers and students, and the attitude towards families, and what they thought was um, what they were required to teach. And I just, so in some degrees, it was um, the, the things that I just took for granted were the way you would educate children weren't there. And I could see, as I got to know the system better, uh, how hard it would be for teachers who didn't have my background, who had themselves been the product of such schools, and who working under the worst possible conditions uh, would not want to rethink education, how hard it would be to change the norms of schooling. But it seemed to me absolutely essential. In a way, politically, I was sort of political. And so I thought, you know, aside from the fact that I happen to love this, it's uh, its own form of political contribution because um, uh, this was not a setting that was inclined to raise produce adults who could um, uh, who could be uh, the citizens we need. And the school was not interested in really the young people's ideas, how they arrived at ideas, um, uh, what was really on their mind. It didn't teach them to re-examine their own assumptions as well as open up possibilities of listening to each other's assumptions. I mean, all of that was eliminated, and that is so essential to democratic life. I'm just reading an article of going through old files of bias of someone doing a study of children's attitudes towards the uh, basic rights. Someone was following a, a class um, where they were teaching about American you know, rights, the right to this, the right to that, the Bill of Rights. And uh, then they asked the students whether they thought those rights made sense. And the students would say yes, and then they would say, well, give me an example. And the students all gave examples of where it wouldn't be right. That is, if you disagree, if it was really important, then you shouldn't worry about uh, warrants for arrest, and then you shouldn't worry about, um, I mean, in general, they, they uh, were perfectly prepared to overthrow every one of the rights if uh, it was important. And um, I thought that's sort of probably how most Americans feel about democracy. 
and it's a wonderful thing unless something is very important and then you just can't afford democracy. And I thought that's a very important question and we don't explore it in school and we don't explore it either in the classroom or in the way we organize each other in the school. Uh, kids have no idea how teachers arrive at decisions. They have no idea how a faculty explores ideas together. Um, they don't know what we think about their families and hear their families and us talk about ideas and then figure out what we're going to do when we disagree. And they're not part of that. And uh, that's how we learn most things when we're young is from the grown-ups that we keep company with. So well, that was the main impact. Was to realize that if you, for 12 years, you keep company with a bunch of grown-ups who represent adulthood, and you never see them engaged in any of the things we claim are important and essential, uh, they may learn to parrot the words, but when it comes down to how you function, they fall back on other theories. Well, I think the story that was so uh, vivid for me was the principal criticizing the students for not being on the center white line and in doing so kind of berating or belittling the teacher at the same time. And I'm reminded of the kind of parallel universes in which teachers and students live where where obedience is the is the primary norm rather than questioning or engagement or curiosity. So why should they think that uh, that's not part of the civic norm? <laughs> you know, when kids in the old-fashioned America, where we didn't spend much time in school, uh, I mean, really, we forget that up until recently, uh, schooling was a side, a side event for most young people. And during those days, uh, young people saw a lot more about how adults actually functioned in the world. Uh, probably knew that they were often non-compliant. You know what I mean? That, that they were part of an adult world, which was often very cruel cool to them. But uh, they had a wider range of ideas about what adulthood meant. And outside of their own immediate family, um, children grow up today. Without that, they have their peer packs, and they have their family, and they have the school. But they're not members of a larger adult community. There isn't any such adult community they could join. One of the interesting novices. one of the interesting points you make in the book in, in your books, I think in several places, is that there are many, many good schools, but somehow we don't see them or they don't become a part of the larger dialogue. Why do you think that is? Well, because they need to be encouraged over a long enough period of time so they too can survive. If all the schools like this had survived, that were started like this but eventually crushed, um, there'd be a lot more. I mean, you know, in other words, there was, when I left New York City, there was at least 100. There had been none when I came to New York City. I'm not claiming I was the difference, but I mean, it was just that period of time. And um, there literally were no schools like these. By the time I left, which was, you know, like 15 years later, there was at least 100, and many more explorers. And there were, um, you know, during the coalition, there were hundreds of high schools. They're having a very hard time surviving these schools because all the policies for reform 
uh, want to make them more, that once are going in the opposite direction. Um, they demean teachers even more. They are based on compliance and the one right answer, on everybody being on the same page. Um, so that the good schools, like I'm describing, and this is a cycle in American education, so the good schools I'm describing uh, have to hide. At best, they hide. They're unlucky, and somebody else is sent into them to reform them. So, I really without any official help. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, please. I'm sorry if I cut you off. So, in schools, we no, no. trust seem to me to be this just wonderful framework for understanding a different way of looking at schools. And the first part of that was trusting parents. Um, I interviewed the director of a movie called Race to Nowhere. Her name is Vicki Abelles. And in the interview, yeah. I commented to her that I was really appreciative of the thread throughout the movie of the power and importance of families. And, and as I recall, she replied in the interview and said, you're the first person in all the interviews I've done who's mentioned that. So why don't we trust parents? But there are conflicting reasons. So what I'm going to say sounds inconsistent. There are some communities in America, but those aren't the ones we're worrying about, where school people are don't trust parents because there's a they are because parents have more power than they do. So teachers are afraid of parents. Well, principals are afraid of parents. And you, are, you probably recognize what I'm describing. But for the schools we want to reform, the general assumption is that these children have no parents, or if they have parents, that they're a bad influence on them. So it, it hardly encourages us to um, listen to the parents, because we've already decided that they're the cause of the children's problems, and we are the saviors. End of that sentence. Well, you tell the story of your father's operation, and I think many of us have had that experience where we were in a medical circumstance with a loved one, and we recognize just how important it is for us to be active participants. And I love the kind of connection you made there with education. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's part of our, so much part of our, you know, life, the fear of being put down and the fear of, which leads us to want to get one step, one, you know, that makes us act in ways that we can't make it harder for someone to put us down. But I think that's part of growing up in our culture and it shouldn't be. That we're looking for somebody else to make a mistake so that they can't blame us. So then you talk about trusting teachers. And we had a really good interview on the show, um, Teachers as Partners, and we've talked about this before. But how do you create a culture where you trust teachers and the teachers are involved in the decision-making in a school? Well, first of all, by the way, and I think it starts off with a leap of faith. It really does, and it's that leap of faith um, 
that I think the idea of democracy itself um, has to make, even though it will often be betrayed. But if you're not willing to act as if most people are trustworthy, and if most people have good intentions, and as if most people um, are, are not, you know, uh, are not out to destroy everybody else. If you can make that assumption, it just changes what you see and hear. Then when a child says something, you either which you might think is just he's just wasting your time, or he's just pretending, or he's just acting dumb. You now you just hear him differently. Now you suddenly you realize, not suddenly, you get accustomed to realizing when a child says something that may sound stupid, that uh, it's because you didn't understand something that's going through his mind. And you have to say the same thing about your fellow colleagues. Um, your assumption has to be that they're not here teaching because this is an easy way of life, because they want to make fast buck, um, or because they hate children. That's, that's so unlikely a reason why they're here that uh, the odds are that when they do things that annoy you, they're working on very different assumptions and you have to hear each other out. But once you start off as if, in that as if all of us are well-intentioned, you're able to listen differently and hear differently and respond differently. And when you do that, it's transformative. It really is. I, I don't know how to explain to people because until you do that, and consistently, because people haven't lived in such communities very often. But you have to do it consistently, even when you think you've been betrayed. You have to keep going as though you hadn't been. Um, so when I started school in, in, in New York, I remember being feeling so baffled by some teacher who was hoarding stuff in her closet, even though we had an open, uh, you know, you could go into the supply closet anytime you wanted. The principal, I didn't. They weren't given out to you, but you follow what I mean. So why was she hoarding all this stuff? And until I realized that she's been teaching for 15 years, and has discovered the value of hoarding, and she may have as a child too. Who knows? Uh, it it might just announcing that the that the storm room is open and do we all agree to do that? It doesn't change a habit any more than they do. The habits are changed that easily by kids. You know, they've found reasons to distrust adults. The fact that you say you're trustworthy um, will take a little while for them to believe. So, but but it, uh, you know, we had a when we started Mission Hill. I think I mentioned in the book at the end of the summer. I overhear a conversation in which somebody asks Geraldine, "Well, how is it to work for Deborah Meyer?" And Geraldine answered, oh, I don't work for her. We work together. And uh, that, that shift in language, uh, you can't teach people that shift in language. They have to just feel it. She felt really insulted for the first time in her life in the idea that she was working for the, for the principal and that, rather than that we were all working for the kids. 
what occurred to me over and over in the stories you tell in the books is dedicated, passionate, authentic individuals who want to make a difference for students, spending lots and lots of time building and creating these cultures and recognizing that it's not just as easy as following some ABC system. Mm -hmm. Teachers all know that. But sometimes they follow a system because at least they can't be blamed then. I did what you told me. And that is the most destructive um, mindset that any adult should grow up having. That uh, to avoid being blamed, I did what I was told. And uh, I think we're, we're deeply immersed now in that kind of culture. Um, you know, when you're first a novice, sometimes it's wise to do that. Not because it's not a put down. Um, to do what you're told by an expert when you acknowledge you're a novice is a sensible first step. Then you can begin to evaluate it. Like we often picked up a program in our schools and said, let's try this for a month doing just what they tell us. We read it over and it sounded kind of interesting. But at the end of a month, let's get together and see whether what we want to do with this. Because sometimes there is a place for just following um, following a prescription. Um, although unfortunately, going back to medicine, I just did that recently. And I had a conference with my doctor yesterday. And there was a complete misunderstanding. Um, and I've been taking a medication I shouldn't have been taking for about a month because I was sort of compliant. I, if something seemed wrong, there seemed to be a contradiction in what she had said. But it was clear she had said uh, to take this pill. Um, and I'm used to complying with doctors. But there's, there are risks if we don't ask questions. Well, you said this, and then you said that. And of course, some people will get annoyed when you say that. Are you trying to contradict me? Or you think you know more than I do? You just started teaching. How do you know? So it makes sense in the first year or so to be a little bit compliant until you've got a hold of this thing. And then begin to shift the second year and the third year. But by that time, 30 40% of American teachers are no longer in the same classroom they started in. Uh, we just do not give professionalism an opportunity to grow on the teacher's part, and certainly not the time it takes to treat each, your colleagues and your families with respect. I mean, it is disrespectful when we ask parents to come to school for family nights, and we, we program them for five minutes, clearly, uh, or 10 minutes maximum. Uh, both sides know this is a phony meeting. But we don't have time for the length that the time it takes to build relationships with our colleagues or with our parents. I have some good friends who are starting a chartered school here in California. And reading your book, I thought, this is the book I would want them to be able to read, especially in schools we trust. This is the book I'd want them to be able to read and talk to each other about it. Did you ever use that as a tool for? kind of building your school community, having common readings? Yes, yes, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing to do. And yes, we did. And uh, 
<laughs> we also we did two things: common readings. We did it when we started the school. Um, one of the books we read um, to start the secondary school was a book by Mike Rose called "Lives Across the Boundary." It's a marvelous book about class and schooling and so forth, and it's just wonderful. He's a very sensitive writer and and storyteller. <laughs> and the other thing we we did would be sometimes would be to read something and then agree that we're going to observe that for that in our classes and come back to it. Like there is a book by um, an article by Claude Steele in California on um, what keeps certain kids, especially bright black kids, from doing worse on tests than they would do <laughs> precisely because it's high stakes. And what is it that um, suddenly makes them seem more stupid than they are? And he's an interesting and African-American scholar. So uh, we decided to look, to imagine if this guy was right, what, what, in what other ways might this show up? Uh, and we sort of purposely planned to observe certain things. And it was intriguing. It opened up whole avenues of, of noticing um, that helped us to see whether uh, we were heading in the right direction. That's the kind of feedback that um, <coughs> um, good professionalism requires. So you're you're listening to the theories of the scholars, but then you're also trying to see how that connects with the work you're doing. We're being asked in the chat if you would repeat the name of that writer. Uh, the last one. Correct. Mike Rose or the other. I think it was Mike Rose. Claude, Claude Steele. S-T-E-E-L-E, -E -E, uh, the University of, I think he's at Stanford. And it was called, he called this um, something like identity threat, some word like that. Deborah, we started uh, a little bit late, and I need to get a sense from you as to what your timing is. Would you like to finish at the top of the hour? Do you want to go a little bit past? Mm -hmm. It's up to you. Since I came late, uh, it's all right with me. Is, would it be okay if we went until 10 minutes past the hour? Okay. That will give us a chance to go to Q&A. Um, can you tell me the relationship between trust and testing? What's that relationship, and where have we gone wrong? Well, the kind of testing we now do is based on our distrust. <laughs> the only reason we do it is because we don't trust. Uh, otherwise, we don't trust the teachers. Um, so we want some what we call objective measure, and we don't trust the kids. And so we try to figure out some objective way in which we can uh, um, codify um, what they, uh, what schools, what the, what the school has taught them. Uh, and once we want to make it objective and standardized, uh, because we don't trust, um, we go from you know from one step to the other of getting further and further away from really being able to assess what that child is up to. So we invent tests for reading that um, don't test reading. They don't even test simple-minded reading. And that's probably what Claude Steele was saying. You know, the, 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 
students are answering, there's two parts to that. One, the students are shut down by certain kinds of fear that they're going to look stupid. And the second of all is that the experiences that lead them to check A, B, C, or D uh, are very different than what the test maker may assume. So their understanding of the question may differ, and there's no place. My son, when he was in third grade, told me he wrote little notes next to his answers because he thought to himself, well, B is probably what they want me to say, but I think C is right. So then he would write a little note. And I had a hard time convincing him that <laughs> the computer didn't read the notes, and that if he thought they wanted him to answer B, he should answer B. But that's, it's an assumption that uh, take, makes it harder and harder for the student to trust us or us to understand the student. And then we begin to teach, then the higher the stakes are for us or the student, the more we feel we have to teach to the test. So uh, then, uh, then our relationship is built all around the testing. And so the purpose of the schooling was to make sure that kids get the answer to those questions. Not that they have reasoned their way to questions in a way that shows us that they know how to think about that subject. The way my son his little note said, you know, I, maybe you think it should be B, but this is my thinking. <laughs> he said it in a third grade way. But that's what I want to know. It's that second question. Why did you answer that? That way, what were you thinking? Uh, and I've done that with kids. And it just startles me that um, once they uh, start trusting me enough to tell me what they're thinking, it's just uh, their answers were sometimes brilliant, <laughs> but uh, and they sometimes were just sheer guesses. Well, I knew it wasn't this, and I'd say, "How do you know it wasn't that?" And it really was that, but they were interpreting that differently. So you know, so I'm, I could go on to the subject for a long time. I'm just also reading all kinds of marvelous stuff published in the 1970s about the uh, fallibility of testing, but it has been always an American, particularly American phenomena. Uh, and there's a wonderful, as well as Asian, by the way, although their exams are somewhat different. But there's a wonderful new book out by someone named uh, Xiao Yang, Yang Xiao, Y-O-N-G-Z-H-A-O, called um, Catching Up or Leading the Way in which he argues that it is precisely the, Chinese, the ancient and continuous Chinese emphasis on examinations um, that is handicapping China's education system and that they are recognizing this handicap but don't know how to get out of that. And he said it's funny for him to come to America and see us um, undermining our own strengths and trying to copy the worst features of Chinese education. So we have had Yang Zhao on the show. For those of you who are listening, there is a recording oh, of an interview on that very book. Um, and again, have we had I, a few, some um, you've, yeah, you've done a great job of have setting I it up. up yes, you did a good job. Uh, um, so you talk about, and, and I want to move to Q&A, and so just a couple more questions from me. You talk about the conditions that foster good teaching, and you talk a lot about small schools and choice and autonomy. 
and you make a really compelling case for this way of thinking about education. In the era of waiting for Superman, what kind of advice do you give to people who want to make a difference but feel as though they're facing this sort of large-scale, federally mandated education reform movement? Well, let me just say one thing about the way you've posed it. The fact of the matter is uh, um, there are always trade-offs. And so you have to first decide, what, why are we doing this? before you can decide which should I trade off. Now, I, I like choice and small schools, um, but I would trade them off if um, I don't think they're, they're not the magic, uh, magic bullet. It's easier to trust people whom you, can, whom you know and whom you can all sit around one table. But um, if the purpose of sitting around the table is to take orders, uh, then the smallness is irrelevant. So what would I tell people? I would tell them, listen, uh, if you're going in, the only way you should go into any profession is if you think you can uh, really use yourself and your mind and your heart well in this field. So <clears throat> there's no point in your compromising in ways that make you hate yourself. So uh, really, you know, you have to figure that out. And one way to figure that out is to make sure that you go into a school that you have some shot at having a, um, being able to survive that. And you need to walk around the school and think, can you, is this a place you can just even imagine that you won't break down to tears just walking down the hall? And then you want to go someplace where you, hopefully where you see there are at least a few other teachers whom you can meet with after school and, um, and you can meet with sometimes in the evening and whom you can uh, debrief with. Um, and if you don't have them in the school, you need to find some teachers in other schools uh, who can, uh, whom you can trust to talk about your experiences. And you should, if possible, write about your experiences so that you can try to think it through, which is part of the purpose of these meeting with other people. And then always uh, keep imagining that uh, uh, there's always cracks, even in assist, any system. And there are ways to enlarge those cracks so that kids get more of an opportunity to be heard, listened to, respected. And that there are ways to do that with families. Um, it's been, it may have been set up so you don't have the time, but there may be ways in which you can carve out time, invite parents in to join you. There's a good book by Lynn Streeb, S-T-R-E-I-B. I don't remember the name. It just recently came out. If you look under Lynn Streeb, you'll find it, in which she um, talks about um, inviting parents, how she worked in schools that were not ideal and got parents into her classroom and herself into their homes. Um, so there, there are... Uh, if you're alert to it and if you listen carefully, there are possibilities in any situation. Um, but it may take more out of you than you're willing to give. But when you realize that that's happening, then you are in the wrong field. And that's what worries me. I, I, I'm afraid that too many of the people who I can inspire to start teaching <laughs> are going to leave in three years because uh, 
they got inspired under false pretenses. Has there been any degree to which the internet has provided for teachers to support each other that you feel is unique or new? No, and I'm surprised. I, I don't know. And maybe the next culture of adults will, you know, are more accustomed to this. Because um, I, I try to do that at our school, get all of us to get on the internet and write each other and so forth. And I, I, I didn't succeed. Uh, but that was 10 years ago. And maybe there are ways. Um, I don't know. I don't know. That's, a, that's an interesting question. And it always seems to me it ought to be. Um, the same way that I always thought if you could watch videotapes with a trusted friend that you could learn things, but it, it didn't catch on the way I hoped it would. So I, I think I think it's hard, but I that's a, maybe. I, th I think I'm hopeful that part of what we do in this interview does reflect the use of technology, the series to bring people together. And I certainly feel as though some of the regulars who come to the show feel like a community. And I think there is inherent in some of these new technologies maybe more of an ability to do that. We're going to move to Q&A. Uh, we've got about 14 minutes. And if you have a question, I've taken note of a couple here. And I'll start uh, feeding them to Deborah. But you can put your question in the chat. Or if you'd like, you can raise your hand. And that's the hand with the green up arrow. And we'll let you take the microphone, and you can ask it in person. Deborah Kenny asks, do you think teacher education programs have a role to play in helping educators trust one another, their students, and their students' families? Uh, I think they could. There was a very good experiment at the University of Michigan. I believe that's where it was, in which they tried to create schools of education professional development that are much that are more like the communities I'm talking about in schools, where the faculty, a small group of faculty and a small group of students take on a common project, uh, adopt a school, so to speak, and that they uh, work at it together so that they they experience while they're still pre-professionals what a professional learning community is about. Because I think uh, you know, if we've been taught all our lives in one kind of school and we want people to do something differently, I think we have to think of all the opportunities we can for modeling a different kind of community. And I think there are very few schools of education that do a good job of that. So if you have a question for Deborah, please feel free to put it in the chat or raise your hand with the green up arrow. Deb B asks, who are you watching now in education? Well, I'm watching all my old schools, and every time I go speak somewhere around the country, I go to look at some schools that people tell me are good, because I'm kind of curious what they mean. Um, so I'm trying to figure out, that's my project, <laughs> to figure out what the language is um, and where I can connect. But for example, um, there's the kids' schools, which are in many ways ideologically the opposite of what I'm uh, proposing. Uh, but I um, have run into some people I really like uh, who are tip teachers, in one case uh, a principal. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to see whether, there's, whether over time those 
tip people who stick with it close to children. I'm not talking about the people who become, uh, you know, policymakers, but the people close to the kids. Whether as they get to know more, their ideas begin to change. Whether there's going to be a new uh, reform movement, such as I believe in, that comes up out of other sources that doesn't spring out of the previous progressive movement, but comes out of other sources. And I think a lot of the people who go into Teach for America, for example, have no background in the kind of education that they are being placed into. So that they're enormously dependent then on what they're told these kinds of kids need. And so they do what they're told. And most of them only last two or three years. That's all they've promised. So they don't get to the point where they begin to say, well, you know, maybe that was not true. I was told when I went into those schools um, something that these children have no language. Um, and all these children have no families. And uh, it was only because I had been very active in the civil rights movement before that I was suspicious of that claim. And but. That's understandable, but if these people stay, if these young Teach for America stay in schools, then they may build um, their own their own form of tradition that I'm describing. So, for those of you who are interested, we did have an interview with um, I'm forgetting his name, the guy who wrote the book for Teach for America, but but uh, teaching as leadership. Um, I, I was really taken, Deborah, by your garden analogy, and you know I think about Kip as a that's not necessarily the garden that I would grow, and it's it's different choice of plants and a different kind of way of structuring the garden. But part of what I think you're saying is that we need to allow for there to be those differences. Yeah, but I think we also need to be able to feel free to criticize them. The part about Kip that worries me most is their assumptions about the children there, their distrust of the kids and the kids' families. Um, and that's really what I'm, uh, it's not so much this technique or that technique, um, but what I see as uh, disrespect. And, um, but on the other hand, I don't probably. I suspect that if I visited enough kids' schools, I would begin to see the differences. That as, as people carry out this model, how they begin to infuse it with their own respect for parents and children in ways that um, um, you know that transform Kip itself. I'm hoping that because um, if this notion that is so central to me of um, respectful, trusting relationships as essential to the idea of community and essential there for democracy, then that's the common thread I'm looking for and thinking about, you know, whether people wear uniforms or don't is not a question of respect. Um, whether people say sir or not. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of artificial things that I don't think are at the heart of respect, but they sometimes stand as symbols for it, and that can confuse us. Have you seen communities in which interested parents or teachers or administrators somehow were able to 
create an environment for a larger civil dialogue around education that maybe didn't come from the schools but made an impact or an influence in a positive way? This is your question. <laughs> I, um, well, I'm trying to think whether um, that question over. You know, it, there are periods, particular moments in any school and community where people are sometimes very passionate. And during such periods, there's also frequently a lot of antagonism and anger. And I'm intrigued by the cases in which that anger was turned into a dialogue. The teacher strike in 1968. Um, it, uh, there was an enormous amount of anger about it in New York between whites and blacks and between teachers and parents. But there are schools that had the first honest dialogues um, that came out of that. And I think probably it's something to do with the fact that in, before the crisis, um, there had been some decent relationships built, and that people took a second look at one moment and said, I'm treating this person like they're a devil, and I know she's not a devil because that's why she took my child home. Uh, you know what I mean? That, that there's, a, there's some ex common experiences that force us to step back for a moment and say, uh, let's listen to each other. So Kenny asks, I'm sorry, Julia asks, what do you think of schools like Big Picture Learning? I love Big Picture Learning. I don't think I could ever do it because I'm uh, much more of an academic um, than Dennis Litke, who um, I think it's, the, it's a, a breakthrough in thinking about schools. It forces you, this model forces us to, to really rethink what it's all about, and why do kids need certain things, and what underlies that need. And when I have visited those schools, I'm just floored. I mean, the attendance is so extraordinary, and the respectfulness is so obvious, and the investment between kids and the network of kids and the adults who sort of shepherding them through for four years. And I think they've had success with kids that They've had success with, obviously, with some extremely brilliant, self-motivated kids who are blossom. But they've also had success with kids I think we may not have been so successful with at Central Park East um, because uh, they, it was still too much of a school. And uh, I don't know. I, I think it's a brilliant, a brilliant departure that uh, is really challenging. Uh, so and I uh, therefore I'm when you said what should we keep an eye on? Keep your eye on Dennis Lifty. So there were several and times in the in fact uh, Dennis has committed to coming on the show but we haven't been able to figure out a time yet. Um, there were several times in the chat when people asked about what gave you an ability to speak up and Ed just posted that you were awarded a MacArthur grant and that you had felt that that gave you some voice, but that anybody can have voice. Is that accurate? And and I will say yep. that anybody can have voice, but you've done a particularly good job of it. Well, first of all, I came in teaching. I think it's related to the fact that I came in teaching in my 30s. 
And I came in after having a sort of political life in the civil rights movement and having gone to a you know, progressive school where I thought, as I think so many of the graduates of our schools do, uh, that I had a right to, not only right, I had an obligation to make my voice heard when I thought I had a contribution to make. And um, so, I, so I had a lot of experience with it, and I had done a lot of writing. So as soon as I started teaching, I started writing about teaching. Uh, I had done writing on housing things and on civil rights issues in my neighborhood in Chicago. You have one old and um, so I think those um, gave me, a, a, you know, I think it's much harder to feel that way when you're 22. Um, but um, not, uh, not necessarily so. And um, the second thing is it's certainly true that after I got to MacArthur, I was listened to more respectfully. I don't know that I talked more, but people decided I must be an expert, a genius, whereas before they tended to think that I was a passionate do-gooder. So it, it shifted the balance a little about how, when I was asked to speak, what role I was expected to be, whether I was the sort of in the field color or whether I was um, an expert. And um, it's true that school people are in the world of, um, in many worlds that you and I belong to, are really not respected. So MacArthur gave me respect. So we have just a couple of minutes left. I wanted to let you finish, uh, if you would, with a little bit about the importance of democracy and how it relates to schools. And especially, I think many of us are feeling that this is kind of a critical moment. I've been intrigued at the events even of the last week where I felt like our inability to articulate democratic ideals is leading us down a path that we may not be comfortable with. Can you, are you comfortable kind of closing on that thought? Yes, yes I am, but it's much too big a subject to close with. I think we are, uh, you know, it's never been quite fully a democracy. We've always been a democracy in progress. It's a project. Uh, but I think uh, that you're right, that we are um, we are on the other side of a line that I think is very frightening, Where uh, and I don't see what's there to block it. Uh, the decline of the labor movement, the absence of any other institutions uh, of the people make it hard for me to see how uh, the special muddied interests can be stopped. And uh, they're perfectly, you know, I mean, um, we assume that people who go into a business for money uh, want to make money. But uh, I don't know what stops them anymore. I don't know constitutionally or just organizationally what we used to have where sort of speak another, other interest groups that were organized uh, for other purposes. And I don't think we have much of that anymore. So I think it is, it is scary. And I don't think we've ever articulated democracy very well. And certainly, we haven't given it respectability inside schools. I mean, if even teachers don't have a vote on anything to do with the way the school runs, why should they have a vote on nuclear policy? I mean, there's something illogical about our, uh, if you were coming down from Mars, I don't think you would look at our school system. I don't think you would imagine that democracy is high on our agenda. Um, and I think everything, uh, the 
the thing that sustained it was when you have people organized, because any individual, democracy isn't very important. My vote probably is not going to count. I mean, one vote. I remember my mother did once lose a primary by one vote, and my father. Uh, but generally speaking, one vote doesn't. It's the fact that we can be a people, a group of people, who um, in association with each other can make our voices heard. But it's very hard to shape the agenda when people with billions of dollars think about that movie, Waiting for, <laughs> uh, waiting for who is it? Waiting for uh, Batman, I like to say. The billionaire Batman. Not the nice civil servant, Clark Kent. But that, um, uh, that billions, I mean, money was spent on that film as though this, like a Hollywood film. Whereas uh, most of us, you know, there's some wonderful documentaries that friends of mine have put out about schools, but if we, if we raise $25,000, we think that's incredible. And it shows just to our friends. It's very, it's very hard, it's very scary, but that means that uh, we've got a window of opportunity, and I think we, we've just got to figure out all the creative ways to make a fuss and to bring attention to the possibility that the people should be heard. Deborah, you can't, you can't see, but I'm clapping for you. We are so appreciative of <laughs> your coming on. If you want more really interesting discussion, uh, two nights from now, Thursday night, Alfie Cohn will be on. It should make for a very fun week. Oh, good. Again, tomorrow night is the Edu Blog Awards. If you are interested, a Future of Education was nominated. Could you use your vote? EduBlogAwards.com and the live ceremony what tomorrow was the night. Name? Oh, it's EduBlogAwards.com. You don't need to worry about it, Deborah. Oh. But, but our audience uh, will know that. Uh, uh, but I'm co-hosting that award show, and it is tomorrow night. It's a little bit early. It's at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. And then, again, a little bit of a break until the new year um, where you can see the fun list of guests coming up. Deborah, thanks again so much for your work and for spending the time tonight. Keep me, uh, keep me connected, and thank you all. Thank you so much. You're getting clapped for. Jackie's asking what time is Alfie Cohen. Same time, same bat channel. Uh, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Lots of clapping, Deborah. Again, thank you so much for taking the time, and we'll let you go as we know. That's late. And I'll see my love. Thank you. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you so much for reminding me. Alfie Cohn is not the same time. It is 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Boy, I almost steered you wrong there. Okay, that was really terrific. So delightful to have Deborah on, and uh, highly recommend her books. And in fact, in her book, The Power of Their Ideas, there's a great suggested readings section, and that's now going to be um, my new reading list. More information in her books, The Power of Their Ideas, and Schools We Trust, and her newest one, Playing for Keeps. Thanks for coming. Thanks to Illuminate and Learn Central for supporting the interview series. sure appreciate your being a part of it. Have a good night, everybody. Yes, good luck to anybody involved or nominated in the EduBlog Awards. And do note that, uh, as a co-host, I'm allowed to say this, it is an imperfect system.
So please come and celebrate, even if you haven't been nominated, because everybody participates in unique ways and we'll have a lot of fun. Uh, the books, again, are The Power of Their Ideas. In fact, if you go to my blog post that shows all of Deborah's books, The Power of Their Ideas in Schools We Trust and Playing for Keeps. Thanks, everybody. Good night. <laughs>